CB On Air, cutting-edge conversations with those in the central banking community. Hello, I'm Dan Hinge, news editor at Central Banking, and this is CB On Air. Last week, we looked at how the 2008 crisis impacted the way central banks do their jobs. This time, we're going to turn to some of the lessons of the crisis and whether we have properly learned them yet. To talk it over, we have Andrew Metric, Janet Yellen Professor at Yale University. Andrew, welcome back. Hello. So let's uh, let's start at the start. Fairly simple. Um, what do you see as the main factors behind the 2008 crisis? I would say there are two main factors behind the crisis, and they're both largely macro factors. Uh, one is the very large global demand that we had for money-like safe assets. Ben Bernanke talked about this in the mid-2000s as the global savings glut. And that's one aspect of it. Uh, emerging market economies were growing much richer. Uh, it, it, the, the oil-producing nations had significant savings they were sitting on. And in addition to that, the rich countries of the world were putting their cash into ever and ever larger institutional pools. All of these pools of cash from the emerging markets, from the oil-producing nations, from the rich countries' institutional pools had a demand for at least part of their portfolio to be safe. And what they would traditionally do when they wanted to be safe was to try to own either uh, U.S. government or agency securities or, or those of other wealthy nations. At the same time that the world was growing richer, the supply of these assets was somewhat paradoxically falling. In the United States, in fact, we were running budget surpluses in the late 1990s, and the total supply of Treasury securities was falling. This increased demand and the reduced supply together created a very large incentive for the financial system to start to manufacture substitutes for safe government debt. And it is indeed that those manufactured substitutes that were gobbled up by all of these different sources over the first few years of the 21st century. And this happened, in some sense, in the shadows, in the shadows both because it was outside of the regulated uh, uh, part of the banking system, uh, but also because it wasn't something that central banks or other regulators thought they should be paying attention to or needed to pay attention to. And thus, we saw a very, very large buildup of securities that most market participants did not feel they were, that they needed to or were ever going to need to expend a lot of resources on evaluating. You see something that you think is very safe, a very small desk, a very small group of people can manage it. So that's on, the, that's on the demand for safe assets. On the other side, it had been a very, very long time on the beliefs side. It had been a very long time since we had had a f- full-blown financial crisis. And it, there was a certain amount of complacency throughout advanced economies that made it such that when people evaluated the underlying risks in some of these assets that they perceived to be safe, the classic example being things like AAA mortgage-backed securities, what was backing them was housing, housing mostly in the United States. And the general view was, well, yeah, that can fall a little bit, but it's not going to fall 30%. It's not going to fall so much that it would create real problems in these underlying safe assets. And that's a natural human tendency. It's what what uh, Reinhardt and Rogoff call this time is different. 
to believe that the world really has changed and we haven't had a good financial crisis in a long time and these assets really can't fall that much. Those two things put together, which in my view are both macro forces, are the, are the primary couplet that led us to the brink of the financial crisis. And while there was other things, and you will hear often blame placed on governments or blame placed on, placed on bankers or just greed in general, I'm not saying those things didn't exist, but the macro factors overwhelmed those things. And so uh, going forward, we really have to widen our aperture a little bit in trying to look at both, both of these sides if we want to be preventing and managing the next financial crisis. And to what extent are you confident that central banks are now on top of those, those macro risks? I think that we are, the, the thinking in central banks is significantly advanced from 10 years ago. But that does not mean that, that uh, they're on top of them. So I would say that 10 years ago, we weren't paying attention to them largely as a group. We weren't paying attention to them at all. It wasn't the type of problem that uh, everyone understands the possibility of froth in a housing market. That was understood as a general rule. But the way that that would then make its way through the financial system, through the variety of instruments that we had created to, to, to simulate a, a safe asset, uh, that was not understood at all. And watching those markets, that, that wasn't done. And now, uh, when I speak with senior central bankers, I feel certainly they get it and they understand that. But we're still in the early days of designing the tools that will make that work. An analogy there would be prior to the Great Depression, there was really deep confusion about what we would nowadays call monetary policy. And uh, what we believed in back then, which was basically the gold standard, was, turned out to be really more the problem. It was the, it was the source of the contagion around the world in the Great Depression. Uh, we did learn that a bit uh, from our Great Depression experience, and there was a much better understanding of monetary policy in general. But it took a very long time before central banks had really cracked the code of what it took to, to have a reliable, uh, stable monetary policy that was credible to market participants and to develop the tools to do that. So we're really still in early stages. Hopefully, we will be faster than we were in the, on the monetary policy side. But we're still in the early stages of doing that with macro prudential tools, even though great strides have been made in understanding. And we'll return to the macro prudential tools in, in a later episode. But uh, for now, um, would you say there's remaining blind spots? Um, one thing that occurs to me is that international cooperation is still somewhat limited and, and potentially is even going backwards at the moment. So I, I, I would agree that the international cooperation is perhaps the, the, the biggest challenge that we face going forward. I don't know if I wouldn't label it a blind spot. I think people see it. They know that it's a problem. Um, but we have challenges, and those challenges are kind of the global political environment is something that's moving away from the type of cooperative activity that is absolutely essential to both prevent and fight any kind of global panic. Um, and, and at the same time, uh, there's been just stalling on understanding what exactly we should do. In some cases, the reaction, the feeling is that, that we need more ring fencing, 
which I, I believe is the opposite direction of which we, we should be going in. Um, and so there are challenges. Some of those challenges are intellectual ones because it's hard for me to argue for what I think is right since I'm not certain of it. And uh, other people may have very strong views and political reasons to make them. And it's difficult for, for folks on the other side to, to, to win an argument if they can't marshal sufficient evidence to do so. So I don't think it's a blind spot, but I think I would agree that the international cooperation side is the biggest challenge that we have uh, in going forward. And if you had to distill the crisis down into one key lesson, uh, assuming that's possible, what, w- what would that be? Well, on the side of fighting the crisis, I I think that the one key lesson is that in the middle of a crisis, we collectively worry too much about moral hazard. We're too worried about creating a situation that would appear to make the next crisis more likely or that seems to not adequately punish people for past behavior. In the midst of a crisis is the wrong time to write new rules uh, to, to, to punish whoever you think is deserving of that punishment. It scares people, and it can make panics worse. And the main example of that, of course, is what happened in Cyprus. Uh, but there are many other smaller micro-examples during the crisis. And I think in general, we have too much of a moral hazard fundamentalism approach to the way that we fight crises, and not enough of a sense of real urgency during the crisis that you must end the panic before you completely lose control of it. Thanks very much. 